Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Stephanie Ibarra, who is an incredible, mission-driven, dramatic arts entrepreneur. She's the artistic director of Baltimore Center Stage. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and it is a special pleasure for me to welcome Stephanie Ibarra. Stephanie is the artistic director of the Baltimore Center Stage. Uh, she took that role in 2018 after serving seven years as director of special artistic projects for the Public Theater in New York. Her career spans over two decades. Uh, she's on the faculty at the Juilliard School. Uh, she holds an MFA from the Yale School of Drama. Full disclosure, that's how uh, I uh, have the pleasure of knowing Stephanie because uh uh, we were big uh, fans of YSD, the Yale School of Drama, and the Yale Repertory Theater, and the Yale Cabaret. And uh, it's been an absolute thrill to watch uh, Stephanie's career and watch her rocket ship to prominence and uh, mission-driven work. Stephanie, welcome to The Indispensables. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. So good to see, hear you again. Yeah, likewise. What a what a thrill. And uh, of course, we only see you in the newspapers uh, lately. But uh, so tell us, um, uh, tell us your story. How, how did you get to where you are? Well, it's been a long and long and winding road, as they say, not a linear path by anybody's definition. I think the only thing that has been consistent in my life and my career is a kind of love of performing arts and theater was the the sort of my performing art of choice. My parents were musicians. So I actually grew up in Texas um, in rehearsal halls for symphonies and orchestras and gig bands and cover bands and everything else. But I got the theater bug real early. And like most folks, I wanted to be an actor. You know, that's that was the, the easiest entry point to theater uh, for me. And so that's what I pursued for, um, for the sort of first part of my, my young life. Uh, and I studied it in college. And after graduation, I moved to Dallas and I, I wanted to be an actor, but my day jobs, and this is the important part, my day jobs were always in theater. So I started um, as the assistant development director at Dallas Children's Theater. I moved into marketing at the Dallas Theater Center. And all of the while, I had sort of one foot in the administration of theater and one foot in the art making in rehearsals in the evening. Is that unusual? No, I, I mean, well, maybe in New York, you're not going to be necessarily an actor and also have a full-time job in a theater because more likely you're going to be spending your time going from audition to audition to audition to audition. Outside of New York, I think it's much more common. Um, at least it was when I was when I was first starting out you know, none of us are making a living as an actor. And for whatever reason, I never, I never even had time to make it into the service industry because I just fell into this administrative role and, and fell in love with the sort of daily operations of theaters. So I, that's how I've spent my majority of my career is sort of navigating like the one foot here and one foot there of administration and and being in the rehearsal room. And that I feel like is the, is my story in a nutshell. I've always had one foot here and one foot there. And I've always throughout my career sort of taken both those feet and put one in front of the other as I just continue to sort of listen and learn um, and evolve. And that has, I've been really lucky in, in the pathways that have, have opened up for me. So you said you caught the theater bug. So you were uh, you were into it. You were into live performance. Your parents are doing music. You're in rehearsal halls. Um, so you know this is something you want to do. Um, you you learned you could act. Uh, but but along the way, uh, you're also learning the considerable 
techniques and tools and a real skill set of being able to run a business. Uh, I know it's running a theater, but a theater is is a business and it's um, it's it's not a simple business to run. There are all kinds of complexities. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that that part, I really appreciate that because I think that part gets lost, but it is misunderstood that our theaters, especially our, our nonprofit, sort of what we call regional theaters, theaters that exist outside of New York, they over the last, you know, 60 years or so have just grown increasingly complex. And so gone are the days where you have an artist who can art and a business person who businesses and and never the twain shall meet. You know, that I I started to understand pretty early in my career that the art and the commerce are really inextricably linked. And as I put one foot in front of the other, I started to understand too that I was repeatedly asked, do you want to be an artist or do you want to be an administrator? And I was like, no, <laughs> or yes, you know, I, I don't want to choose. And so I, I quickly found myself being most comfortable at the intersection of the art and the commerce and being able to use one to leverage the other and to be able to speak both fluently and actually bring both of those sort of halves of my brain or both of those aspects of the industry into the daily operations of, of running a theater and into the cura- the curatorial choices of running a theater. Yeah. I mean, from my, my perspective is very limited um, here in New Haven, uh, but I did have the chance to serve on the board of um, the Yale Cabaret for a number of years, uh, along with my wife and other community members. And um, which is really how we became acquainted. And uh, I used to always uh, be puzzled at first that the choice of the plays, um, you know, had financial implications or, or I, I, I was, uh, I mean, it made sense once I thought about it, but I, I thought, you know, gee, the artists, you know, they bring uh, to the table, you know, here's what we want to do. And often it would be, um, challenging theater. It would be theater that is underrepresented. It would be theater that where the perspectives or the messages or the stories maybe wouldn't be something that somebody would get a chance to see. And then uh, someone would be concerned that people in the community wouldn't come see it. And that, uh, you know, so I always found that to be an interesting puzzle because from I was there to support the art. Uh, but very quickly I became aware that you know there's a bottom line to this business too yeah this is this conversation is so timely i guess um because i'm in the middle right now of putting together you know a a budget for next fiscal year and planning season like not just one season but two seasons and coming out of a pandemic and and everything else so these conversations about what um, what amount of the art or in in the way I sort of have come to look at this or think about this now is what amount of programming and activity is going to yield X amount of ticket sales versus what amount of programming and activity is going to position this nonprofit theater to do the most it can do in terms of the 501c3 mandate to do public good and be able to attract individual donations and foundation donations. And so that sort of puzzle of where is the money coming from is a, is a moving target. Um, and I think it is moving even more rapidly now uh, as a result of the pandemic, but it's, it's not a science either. You never know. You actually don't know what's going to hit. And there are lots of folks who think that the classics are the ones that people want to pay money for. That's not necessarily true. Musicals, not necessarily true. So it's a little bit of a like a game of, yes, there's data, use the data, look at the, you know, look at the numbers, look, crunch the numbers. And also you just got to sort of go with your gut. Yeah, I want to ask, I want to unpack a lot of what you just said, because I want to ask you a number of things. I do want to ask you about the pandemic. 
Uh, I also want to drill down a little bit on what you were talking about earlier. You said you'd been in development roles and, you know, where you actually raise money from people who are contributing. You mentioned the 501c3 status, so um, people can get a tax deduction, presumably, if they contribute money. And then, of course, you're trying to sell tickets. And and it is it is a puzzle uh, because from from my perspective, much of what I looked to theater for is to see things I wouldn't have thought to ask about, you know, or to see things that I just, I didn't know enough. I didn't know enough about it to be curious. So um, to me, that's the gift, uh, especially of uh, more challenging theater. Um, That's, of course, you know, I'll love to go see a, a musical that everybody knows, but I'd much rather see something that, has to be explained to me. Yeah. Well, more of you, please. (laughs) I think that that, that kind of curiosity is what, it's what motivates me too in, in all forms of art. I'm much, I'm like you, I'm much more likely to want to go see something I've never seen before than to want to repeat. The only piece of art that I, that I consume repeatedly just like clockwork is the is the west wing it's the only piece of art that i can just sort of like i don't read books twice i don't watch movies twice and um the west wing is the one form of storytelling it's the that's the one television show i will just never get tired of watching so i get it i totally get the the pull toward the thing that you know that's going to be so comforting or that you just don't get sick of seeing. And I think that there's, um, there's just always an opportunity to be reaching for more and to, I think part of our job as artists, as theater makers is to fuel that curiosity, to make curiosity completely irresistible, um, in, in not just the content and the form of the storytelling, but this is back to the business, but in the overall experience of going to the theater, we, we can think back to those, you know, the Yale cabaret days, I think is a beautiful example. The cabaret, what was going on at any given time in that little theater, in that basement, it might've been fantastic, but oftentimes it was like a very hot mess but it often didn't matter because we were all sitting there together, eating dinner, drinking wine, right? It was like the atmosphere was amazing. So I think that the joy that we felt as audience members and as theater makers in that tiny basement theater, I think is as important to the theater going experience as what is on stage. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, um, you know, of course, uh, I, I see theater of, of all types except not for the last year what's it been like leading this institution through this crisis oh man it's been hard it has been so hard the pandemic hit like right when we were about i don't know what 40 percent of the way through my first season at baltimore center stage and so this is, I'm, I'm in the middle of my second season with Baltimore Center Stage, and I didn't get my feet underneath me before the ground started shifting pretty radically, and that was really challenging. However, in some ways, it was incredibly liberating because all of a sudden, the rate of change was not up for debate or negotiation. We had been talking as an organization about a strategic plan and the language we were using was like, what is our appetite for change? What is the rate of change? You know, can we say anti-racism? What does that mean? You know, all manner of that. What are we going to do about the subscriber model? We got to wean ourselves off of it. That was the sort of like luxurious conversation that we were having before the pandemic. And then March of 2020 happens and boom. Like we don't get to to say or dictate anymore um, the way whether or not we want to adapt. We have to. So in that way, I I am choosing to hold on to 
the opportunities for innovation that were before us that we were able to sort of grab, but the choices that that came with the pandemic, it was just, they were awful. It was just, a, you know, I feel like on any given day, my managing partner, Michael Ross, and I were huddled together, you know, with a fresh batch of hell of information and trying to figure out how to keep people employed, how to keep people insured and how to keep the theater, not just alive, but actually how to envision a way forward that allowed Baltimore Center Stage to thrive and come out the other end, a stronger and more resilient institution. I was, that is, you know, I have more gray hair now and, <laughs> and, and what have you is not, but but so what you're saying so much there and um uh, one thing you're saying that i'd like to explore um is of course like any leader uh you uh have people who report to you you have multiple constituencies including uh, people whose livelihood and career uh depends on the decisions you're going to make uh, you and your managing partner are uh, trying to uh, take care of the institution and guide the institution through this crisis so that the institution itself is alive, uh, but you're balancing uh, also trying to take care of human beings whose livelihood and career is attached to the institution. And then meanwhile, you have a whole community uh, of other constituents, vendors, uh, and of course, members, contributors, uh, and people who uh, love to go to the theater and people who don't yet know they do. And, and, and so I have a whole bunch of questions. One is, were you able to continue delivering content to folks? Yes. Yeah. We um, very quickly did what lots of theaters did. You know, we pivoted favorite word of 2020 um <laughs> i prefer to say we adapted we evolved rapidly so but we also took our time so what what we didn't do immediately was to start to envision new sort of new ways of of uh, delivering theatrical content we did put uh, a play on film, like, right, like that we were supposed to be opening one person play called Where We Stand by Donetta Lavinia Grays. And it had just completed its run off Broadway in New York. And we were like, right about to, to, to start in Baltimore. And the pandemic hit. We immediately, um, I mean, within like, I don't know, 72 hours or so, we were able to grab a, a Baltimore-based filmmaker and put the, the, the show on, on tape. And then we took a breath. And over the course of the summer and the early part of the fall, we were regrouping as an organization. Yes, we were doing some online events and discussions and what have you, but we weren't producing plays in any way, shape, or form but we are now. So what we, what we were doing over the course of the fall was relearning how to do this thing that we all knew how to do for, for, you know, decades in some cases. And we were gathering information about, and like all kinds of inputs. And now as of like, let's see, last night, I watched a run through of Miranda Rose Hall's new play, A Play for the Living in the Time of Extinction, which is currently in rehearsals at Baltimore Center Stage. I watched a rough cut of uh, The Glorious World of Crowns, Kinks, and Curls by Kelly Goff, which is in its final editing stages. Um, we filmed it a couple weeks ago in our theater, and we're in rehearsals for a new Noah Diaz play called The Swindlers. So all of that happened or is happening sort of simultaneously. So we're in full production mode, which feels amazing. No live audiences yet, but we're delivering theater. And, and uh, so when do you anticipate live audiences? Do you have that on your radar yet? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, we had hoped to, 
way back, way back in September when we thought maybe, you know, we were looking so far ahead to like April and May, we thought maybe we might be able to do some socially distant performances um, right about now. Um, But we weren't positive. So we actually built the season and built the the sort of um, production designs to be able to accommodate um, socially distant audiences or not. So as we've gone through each production process, um, we were always hoping, but never relying on um, in-person audiences. So at this moment, we've now made, we just made the decision to take the swindlers completely virtual, which wasn't the original plan, but you know, it wasn't a hard pivot. And so now we are, we have our eyes on the fourth and final show of the season, which is a new play called The Garden by Charlene Woodard, directed by YSD alum Patricia McGregor in co-production with La Jolla Playhouse. So that's the moment I'm hoping we'll be able to do um, in-person audiences. But if we don't feel like it's safe or if our, our, if our artists or our audiences aren't comfortable, then we won't do it. We'll, we'll deliver it virtually and visit them in, in San Diego. Yeah, and have do you feel like um, having uh, done this, that on the other side, when you're able to resume live programming, uh, you'll have uh, a whole additional way to proliferate the content that maybe would have taken a decade to develop otherwise? That's exactly right. That's one of my one of the things I'm holding on to um, in the process of relearning how to produce theater throughout the pandemic is that uh, the staff and I have been incredibly deliberate over the course of this season in embedding, you know, in our digital content and, and our captures of our plays, we are embedding really specific experiments and really specific learning goals in order that we can come out the other side of this and, and not have it all been just that one moment, but that we can carry it forward. I am positive that we will continue to look for ways to deliver content virtually, if only because we've already seen that it actually increases access. So when we think about the the barriers to entry for theater, actually physically getting to the theater is sometimes that's, that's it. It's not the ticket price, you know, but it's physically getting there. So yeah, we're going to keep going. And I think we have a whole new asset class at our disposal and we're going to keep tinkering with it to see what, see what we can do and how we can serve our audiences better. Yeah. And for, you know, for people who love theater, at least um, speaking for myself, uh, there's something about being there in the room. You can see and you can hear and you can, but the reality is there is this kind of intangible energy uh, of being in the room together. But having said that, um, there's really something gained, especially, uh, and I, I, I want to uh, turn uh, to the mission focus of, of your art um, and uh, uh, the work you're doing uh, that has such a strong mission focus. Um, you know, that kind of mission-driven art isn't produced every and so not everyone has access to that. And, you know, if you're in uh, New York, you do. If you're in Baltimore, you do. Uh, but uh, lots of people who should be curious, uh, they may be curious, they should be curious. Lots of people who have a lot to learn from the art you're uh, producing, um, maybe they could have access to it now when they wouldn't otherwise. That's right. And um, I think that I'm with you and the, the being in the room is there's nothing better. There's nothing better. And we'll never stop doing that. That's core to who we are as theater makers. The thing that I've grown to appreciate um, about even virtual theater, Zoom theater, whatever you want to call it, it's still theater. It's still communal storytelling and there is still community building happening inside of it. I was, 
I was so struck earlier this week when we were doing the first rehearsal of Noah's play and couldn't be in the room together. The actors are all in their separate apartments, quarantining, and we have started rehearsals virtually. So the reading, the first read through, which is just a magical moment in a, in a, in a rehearsal process, it all happened over Zoom. But what was what was incredible was that we were, me and the, the rest of my staff, we were listening and watching the actors on our screens reading this hilarious play. All of us were laughing out loud. I fully, you know, laughed so hard I cried off all my mascara. And we were all in the chat. And in the, in, we were able to commune over this play during this play in a different way than we, we wouldn't have been able to do it the same way in the room together. Yes, I would have been able to hear everybody's laughter. That would have been great. However, what we weren't, we, we wouldn't have been able to do is to lean over and, and repeat the line that just, you know, had us all like rolling on the floor. And that in and of itself was just, it was such a good time. And I appreciated that that sort of shared experience as well. I'll take it all. Yeah. And and it's, you know, if you were in the rehearsal room together, you wouldn't be texting each other because that wouldn't be polite, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's interesting because you know, I've been doing seminars from our studio here. And the thing that bugs me is, you know, I I want to look at the faces so then I don't look at the camera. You know, I want to see, are they, are they rolling their eyes? Are they nodding and smiling? You know, are they laughing? You know, I, I, in, in, in a live uh, seminar, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a actor. I'm delivering very serious content. So if I'm funny, it's a surprise, you know, but, but that's part of what I do. And it's, it feels, it's, 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 it's so different. It feels uh, difficult to not be able to hear the laughing, you know? Um, so there's two things I want to ask you about. Um, uh, one is um, I want to explore a little bit more what you were saying about uh, that you were sitting in strategic planning discussions and you were trying to pre-pandemic gauge the appetite for change. And then um, one of the uh, one of the effects of the pandemic was that uh, that conversation was overtaken by events uh, that uh, it didn't know it no longer mattered what people's appetite for change was. We're going to be changing like crazy now. And in a way that's an opportunity. Yeah, it was um, the, you know, it was chaotic and confusing and there were many sleepless nights, but we, I feel really lucky because every conversation with the staff, with my managing partner, and with our board of trustees, that's the framing. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for us to, what, reset or um, regroup or reevaluate or restructure. You know, the, the number of ways that we were able to, you know, I'm a theater Person, so I there's the the sort of literary device or dramaturgical device of Deus ex machina, you know, the the, the hand of God comes down and just like so I I refer to this moment as COVID ex machina because this is the moment where everything just sort of wow I was I was pushing some boulders up hills to be very honest and um, did you get them all the way up or did they roll down like Sisyphus? both a little bit of both but mostly or something I just maybe I just traded some boulders for others um and these boulders are a little bit easier to maybe push up the hill but um but largely things got some things got way easier and one of those one of those things was um talking about anti-racism before 
COVID, before, you know, the uprisings of, of the summer of 2020, I was still like in conversations and talking about race and racism within the American theater. And I would say anti-racism and people would say, but anti, anti sounds so bad. Like you, it sounds so negative. And I was like, well, it's no, it's just against racism, anti-racism. What is bad about that? To, to be against something very, very bad seems like a pretty good position to take. And um, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to hear, I want to hear about uh, a lot of the change leadership. Um, and, but I, but I really do want to get into um, the, 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 the mission, the, the literary theatrical mission of teaching about anti-racism, teaching anti-racism, performing anti-racism, um, I'd love to learn. I, I am now on the edge of my seat because uh, I want to learn about this. Well, I um, I'm still learning about it myself. I mean, I think it's it's going to be a lifelong process for all of us, unfortunately. But the the very basics of it are that remember earlier I mentioned the 501c3. The mandate is to do public good. And we don't even have to talk about the Baltimore Center Stage's specific mission before we can immediately understand that doing public good, that ending racism and dismantling systems that oppress people, that's a public good. Can we all agree? I hope. Um, so inside of that, if that's the starting place, then the imperative becomes learning and understanding the ways that those systems show up inside of our daily practices and inside of our storytelling, inside of our art forms. You know, this, I was raised in this country and this country is, um, it's the water we swim in, you know, there's no denying that. And the more that we can understand the matrix um, and unplug from the matrix <laughs> the the better off we're all going to be. And so inside of theater, yes, that looks like telling stories that humanize folks who have been dehumanized. It means making sure that we have representation on stage and in, in, in terms of who is telling the stories. But it is so much more than that. The sort of stuff that we as, as, you know, progressive, ideological, liberal folks, um, like the do-gooders who work inside of nonprofits and what have you, we espouse some pretty amazing ideals. And we stand against things like, I talk a lot about wage discrimination, or earning discrimination, pay discrimination. Who, who is for that? Nobody I know. And yet, it exists within my own organization. It exists within the production budgets, and in it exists within the larger staffing structure. You have to be looking for it sometimes in order to find it. But if you go looking for it, you don't need to look at the stage. You just need to look at the budgets. You're going to find racism. That's a great object lesson. It's a great uh, uh, device for explaining uh, because so often differential impact uh, can be dressed up in um, charts and graphs and given uh, rationalizations in order to camouflage what many people have long suspected. And I believe that people like you are now exposing uh, in a way that makes very, very, very hard to dispute what's really going on below the surface. And, 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 you know, if you look back at the history of civil rights, I think, you know, there are many, many examples of where you start to see the tip of the iceberg. And in years in retrospect, you see once this has been uncovered and, and taken apart and um, that it, it's far more explicit discrimination uh, than people were willing to own. But I think even then people people, you know, who were, whose hearts were in the right place and people whose hearts were not in the right place. I think they honestly didn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because that it, it hurts. It, it hurt. It can hurt to think like this thing that I love in our case, you know, the theater, it's, 
it doesn't feel good to think about, oh, we could be doing harm. We could be perpetuating the, the same ills that we purport to hate and we want to abolish, you know, that that is that feels very human and natural to me to either not want to see it, to be willfully sort of ignorant of it or to reject it. Or to to sort of just not be curious about it at all, you know? It makes complete sense to me, and it feels very human, and that does not make it right, you know? <laughs> I think that we have to help each other. We have to help each other to normalize the multiple truths that that are operating inside of our industry, inside of our storytelling, inside of our organizations. It is true that the people that I work with are, their hearts are all in the right place. It is true that my heart is in the right place. It is also true that I perpetuate harm, that I am, I am unknowingly, unwittingly, unconsciously, but very definitively holding up structures that keep other people down. So I would like to learn more about them. And I would like for people to tell me if I, I can't know it all, so the, the extent to which people are turning on lights for me and, and walking with me, that feels like a gift. That's a real gift. That's a great way to put it. And, and I'm guessing that your interdisciplinary education, your interdisciplinary career path, um, and your interdisciplinary expertise uh, plays a role in, you said you had one foot uh, in administration and one foot in, in the art. And um, I've seen this before, people who are able to uh, triangulate in their professional development, it often allows uh, them to see a little bit more from the outside what's going on in each area because you can step into your administrative role and see something different about what's going on with the art. You can step into your artistic role and see something different that's going on in, in the administration side. And I'm wondering, I'm guessing that your anti-racism mission is manifested in how you're running the business and it also in, in the art that you're choosing to produce. Yeah. It's hard for me to not have the the sort of anti-racism, anti-oppression lens always, always informing um, the way that I'm thinking about something, you know, and, and I love the word that you use triangulate because that actually, this feels perfect for what I feel like is constantly going on inside of my head, whether I'm reading a script or looking at a budget or cash flow or a marketing plan or thinking about HR practices. It is always sort of taking the the thing and looking at it from and refracting whatever I'm thinking on or having to deal with from multiple angles. And the anti-racism, anti-oppression sort of lens, I think, is all-encompassing. I, I, but, but I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it right so much of the time. And, and I think that part of the, this is just getting back to like the idea of surrounding yourself with people who are, have differing perspectives and, and different strengths. And I feel really lucky that I have a team around me who, who are coming at this work from you know, for this, we're reaching for the same thing, but we're coming at it from different points of view. And they are also sort of uh, triangulating um, along the way. And it allows, it, it allows for a kind of force multiplying effect when we're fanning out into the art and the organization that I do not have to be, nor should I be the only one thinking about these things. I like that you say force multiplying uh, as in, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, as in each person's power uh, lifts up the whole team, lifts up each other, sort of uh, supercharges each other. So there's a, um, in business speak, you know, there's a, a synergy. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. Exactly right. So I'm guessing that you attract people who uh, are aligned with your mission and I'm even guessing that people who are not aligned with your mission probably would 
do better somewhere else because, you know, your mission is front and center. What happens when uh, there are people sitting around the table or sitting around the Zoom screen and there's, there's, you still must have conflict or you still must have to both be authentic and transparent with each other, but also um, have to navigate your own differences of opinion and your own differences of perspective? That is constant. And I think, um, you know, there are folks uh, who sit around the table with me who push me and challenge me in ways that I am really grateful for. And it's really hard, but there is a kind of underlying trust, I think, um, a faith that we have in each other and in our shared meta goals. So those are the folks with whom I can have conflict after conflict after conflict, and it feels generative. The conflict feels feels additive, and like we are coming out the bet the other side better. You know, I'm coming out the other side better, uh, even when I'm disappointing people who want me to be making different decisions. The folks who are not willing to interrogate or engage or be challenged in their ideology, those are the folks that I'm less likely to be in relationship to. I just don't, there's too much to do. There are too many ways to to spend energy and time. So those are the folks that I'm more willing to say like, cool, no, I don't need to be here. And we do not need to be in relationship to each other or in conversation because we do not have trust and, and we're, we're so far apart that there's, there's no alignment. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and sometimes, uh, look, you know, uh, people say, oh, well, we can agree to disagree. Well, no, there's some things about which I am not willing to honor your point of view because I think your point of view is harmful. That's right. I believe that there are moral and ethical absolutes. And I believe that racism in all of its forms, bigotry in all of its forms, discrimination and oppression in all of its forms, objectively, morally bad. And that that is, um, that is unambiguous to me. Uh, that, is, that is a bright line. And, and, you know, what I always tell people is if you get in trouble here on earth for that, you should. Uh, but wait till you leave this earth, the trouble you're going to face. I know, I know. Right? And I, I, yeah, the, I know, but how many people do you know who are, who would say something different? How many people do you know would come out and say, you know what? I think racism is fine. I think that genocide is cool. Uh, I think, you know, hey, Darwin had it right or whatever. You know, like, I, I don't know that many people. I mean, it turns out. <laughs> Stephanie, it turns out this is more in vogue than we would have ever guessed, but uh, which is really makes your mission that much more important. But I, I think to be fair, what most people, uh, or I, I don't want to say most people, I think where a lot of people uh, have a hard time embracing and understanding the approach to anti-racism that you uh, are pursuing is they feel like it's accusing them of something that they, they, they are not aware of and that they're saying, you know, I, you know, don't treat people that way, or I certainly don't mean to, I don't realize I do. I'm, I'm pretty sure I don't. And, and I don't want to be tarred with that brush. And um, so I, I think, frankly, that's where the most challenging conversations happen because you have to help people see, you know, it's like one of those um, uh, paintings where, or one of those uh, uh, newfangled uh, pieces of art where you, it looks like a pattern, but then when you look, it's actually a duck or something, you know, it's like they, 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 they can't, they can't see it. And it seems like art is a way that one of the things that art has that, that argument doesn't is maybe you can get through to people. Yes and no. I mean, I the listen. I don't like to be accused of. I don't. Nobody likes to be told, "Ow, you hurt me," or "You hurt somebody. You caused harm." That doesn't sound pleasant. Um, I don't enjoy it either. But uh, 
but I welcome the critique because uh, it happens to be not about me. You know, it happens that the the greater good that we're that I'm reaching for, I, I think I can withstand some some criticism. But again, I get it. I totally get it. It's superhuman. It's totally human, and it, and it is incumbent upon all of us. Every single one of us, regardless of our race or our gender, to to look for the ways that we are walking through the world and unintentionally perpetuating harm. And but I do think that in art, yes, it is a way to undeniably, it is a way to help correct narratives and challenge narratives and challenge thinking and inform thinking. And in my experience, I didn't, you know. I didn't even get through my first season at Baltimore Center Stage before folk. I was fully into like show number two, and folks were like, "So is the theme of your season race?" And I was like, "No, no, there's no theme of my season. It just happens that not just happens. I curated it this way. The artists who are delivering the stories are all artists of color." Uh, with with very few exceptions, I would say, um, that doesn't make it about race, though it is not not about race because these are racialized identities and politicized identities. But it's so funny because I looked at my first season and I was like, oh, what I see is thematically that it's all they're they're all plays that rely heavily on the actors and not on big sets. They rely heavily on actors being really, really good at their job and hyper-theatricality. But, but everybody else or lots of other people just saw race. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because um, I think white people somehow don't see whiteness as racial. <laughs> you know, So it's like there's white people and then there's race. Well, no, no, no. Race was a theme when it was all white people, too. It just was not reflecting the rest of the population. That's right. And the, you know, the the sort of all white casts, all white design teams like the that conversation has been really fun um, over the over the years, because the. Again, it's just sort of like folks doing what they like, working with the people they know, which is what we all want to do, you know. Um, but the insularness and the homogeny of our networks is how it unintentionally creates exclusion and harm. And there was one moment when I, a few years ago, where you know, I encountered somebody who had a all there was a project that had an all white uh, cast and creative team, and I was like, "What? What would it? How would it make you feel if I hung a whites only sign above your rehearsal room door?" And they were like, "Well, I wouldn't feel good at all." And I was like, "Well, that's what you've got going on. You didn't you didn't do it on purpose, but that's the end result. Is you've got a whites only space." I think uh, what's uh, when I look at at, at at these issues in business, of course. Um, well, the conversations are, are different. Um, I, I think that they're getting more courageous, the conversations. Uh, but, but what I see is, look, you're leaving, or what I often say is you're, you're, you're leaving talent uh, at the door. You're leaving customers at the door. And on the other side of the door, you're, uh, you use the word homogeny, which is what made me think of this, that you're, you're undermining um, innovation, you're undermining creativity because, you know, everybody sitting here looks and thinks the same. And so there, there's no way you will have the same kind of innovation and creativity as you would if um, you were inclusive and more diverse. Yeah. You know, the, um, the, the earth, like just sort of the world has repeatedly told us that, that biodiversity, like you can see it actually played out over it's science. It's science. Biodiversity rules like that. That's, that's who wins. Um, so if you're, if you want to think about it just in really crude terms, it's a competitive advantage. Bear in mind, I'm meant to put it in those crude terms. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I appreciate it. I've, I've used that some of that, those, that crudeness myself in, in thinking about or in talking about um, our, our audience space, we're leaving money on the table. 
our funding base. We're leaving money on the table. You know, we're a nonprofit. We need people to hand us cash in order to survive. And we're leaving money on the table. If we are not um, activating, I mean, every, every asset we have creatively and financially, physically. And if you're, if you're of one mind and of one ilk, then that's, you don't have a shot at it. I love that. Um, So as we're uh, nearing the end of our time, uh, let me ask you, what's your best career advice for somebody? If you're, you know, you're riding up an elevator, you got, you got a chance to give somebody a couple of uh, gems of advice. What's your best advice? Buy yourself a slinky um, as a reminder that it is not a linear path. It does not have to be, nor necessarily should it be, that your pathway in your career will be winding and it will look like it is taking detours, but the extent to which you are staying curious and um, and and being sort of disciplined and rigorous in your curiosity, then you're going to end up in a place that y- you find fulfilling. And I, I wish, when I look back on my career, I see now the slinky of it all. I see the moments that were really, really challenging uphill and then the moments that were like, whoop, and I slipped down and I was in a free fall or I was, you know, it was just sort of the long and winding road and it was taking different shapes. And I wish I could say it was a strategy. I wish I could look back and be like, you nailed it, you know, because my strategy was on point, but it wasn't, it wasn't that, I wasn't that strategic when I was 23, but but it has served me really well. The the thing of of putting one foot in front of the other and not necessarily relying on a linear five year plan or ten year plan. I love it, Stephanie Abara. Thank you for being a guest on the Indispensables. Thank you. In our next episode, I will talk with Asaf Gall, who is a fitness entrepreneur building a small empire of crunch franchises. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.